Hello and welcome back to the Future Work Life Podcast. And today we're talking about bad bosses and that's because Deborah and Ken Corey, my guests today, have just written a book by that name. Deb is a global thought leader on HR. She's recently been named among the top 101 global engagement influences and HR most influential thinkers. Ken has spent his career leading technical teams as an engineer and manager and they bring together their expertise to explain why almost all of us, 99.6% specifically, has had a bad boss and find solutions that will hopefully start preventing six out of ten of us leaving our jobs because of their boss you'll find links to deborah and ken's profiles in the show notes as well as a link to their new book bad bosses ruin lives the building blocks for being a great boss thanks as ever for listening to the podcast if you're interested in me talking to your team about any of the themes we discuss in the pod today then you can get in touch also via the link in the show notes so without further ado here's my conversation with deb and ken so Deborah and Ken, very pleased to have you um, on the podcast today. I thought I'd start with a little question which taps right into the essence of your new book. What makes a bad boss? <laughs> I think that, to be honest with you, there's no one answer. Life would be a lot easier if we said, if you do this, that makes you bad. I think that with such diversity, with all of our people being different, our companies being different, there's lots of different ways to be bad. We, we can go into more detail later, but we tried to answer that question by coming up with 10 types of bad bosses. And that was a way to go from the obscure to something a bit more focused. I would add on to that, though, that basically it's a code smell. If you're doing things the way they were done five years ago, 10, <clears throat> 10 years ago, 20 years ago, if your meetings are the same and the politics are the same and all, that's a real, that's a real sign that it's time for something to change. Right. Yeah, it's a real sign that there's a, a culture that uh, of management that you might want to take a look at. Yeah, and I mm. guess just the word bad. It's the per- your employee during the day is not able to feel and do their best work, and when you're a really bad boss, and that's why the title is "Bad Bosses Ruin Lives." You go home, part of my language, feeling like shit, and it ruins your not just your work life, but your personal life as well. But there's all levels of bad. You could, as a bad boss, ruin five minutes. Or you could ruin weeks, months, whatever. So clearly the worst manifestation of it is, like you suggested, you're going home and you are anxious, you're sleeping badly, you're, you've got bad emotional health and ruined relationships with your family, your partner, your kids. So that's the worst manifestation of it. But let's say that's, hopefully, let's say that's a couple of percent of people. For everyone else... To what extent is the responsibility of a boss simply to get you to deliver your work well rather than to make you feel good? I guess the two are related because we've all been in that situation. You can't do your best work if you're not feeling well. It's like having one hand tied behind your back. If you feel, you know, you feel like you're not valued, you feel like your boss doesn't trust and respect you, you've got limits in what you can do. And I think that when Ken said at the beginning about the new world of leadership and people need to think and act differently... I think we need to see that connection because before it was all, I'm not going to touch your feelings. I can remember when I started in the workplace 20 years ago, I'm just going to focus on your physical work. And Mm -hmm. we're seeing more and more that relationship um, and the flow between the two of them. I think this is a bigger trend, isn't it? With this recognition that there is a connection between work and your personal life and that the two are inherently connected and intertwined and 
it's wishful thinking to just think that you can separate the two and you can step into work often that being the spare room like it is for me and something 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 suddenly shifts from your research and your observations with work with clients and those that you're speaking to regularly how big a problem is this Uh, in our survey 99.6 percent of people have had a bad boss that's massive it's huge it's everybody right yeah 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 this is the the next metric is the one that i'm most alarmed by is that in our survey of 800 people when you surveyed anybody from one year in service out to 30 years in service the ratios of people to to bosses doesn't change no in other words we're not learning lessons where we saw just as much bad bossing 30 years ago as we saw for somebody who's just now entered the market. And that's terrifying to me. Just the yeah. fact that we're not going anywhere. We're despite new tools, despite this new world, despite all this balance we're talking about, we don't seem to be learning how to manage better. We we yeah. saw that with our son. I think he was a uh, 20 and he had his first job in retail. And he had this horrible boss. He we weren't writing the book at the time. And he'd come home and just tell us these stories of how his boss had treated him. And it was like, this is not what the world of work is like. Okay, Anthony, don't worry. It does get better. But yeah, as as Ken said, it is a problem that exists and it's not getting better. And the problem is it's a ripple effect. You have a bad boss. You learn from that boss. You pass it on to the next person. So if we don't fundamentally change what we're doing, it's never going to get better. It's going to be this vicious circle. And if you look at the relative impact of a boss on somebody's likelihood, first of all, just to stay within an organization, but also certainly to develop, which is often those two, again, they're connected. Um, it's like a huge, isn't it? There's just a massively, again, a disproportionate impact of that individual, that team leader, that manager on someone's feelings about their job. And of course, I don't know about you guys, but I spend a lot of time talking to businesses at the moment. And because hiring is difficult and challenging it's always been difficult but particularly challenging at the moment for certain roles retention is more important than ever and yet we're not focusing on possibly the biggest determinant of whether somebody stays around or not and that's whether they've got the right person leading them in a minute we could talk about some of these personas of the different bosses because i found them fascinating but i suppose one, one more thought on that and it's related to culture so forgive me if this is a, a, a big question but I've always been of the opinion that culture's more likely to be formed at a team level or certainly easier to form at a team level rather than a organizational level. Certainly when you're talking about a company with 10,000 people or 100,000 people with multiple sites in different locations. From what you've seen, how much of that is true? And therefore, again, are we asking a lot of managers not just to be able to manage people's workload and the tasks they're delivering throughout the day, but also to be thinking about culture and building a culture of encouraging growth and therefore impacting whether someone does stick around or not. I think you're, you're bang on. Uh, culture in a team is like driving a car. Culture in an organization is like driving an iceberg. It's a completely <laughs> different kettle of fish, right? Yeah. You touched on the point that uh, a manager has a huge impact on the people's perception of a company. I've worked at a company that got an award for being the best place to work, and it was a horrible place to work. And it was all because my direct supervisor for four years, never gave me any feedback at all. Nothing. Didn't fire me, but not a promotion, not a pay rise, nothing, right? Mm. So yeah, it's absolutely huge what's going on here. Now, I think managers, 
in a team will drive culture. Now, if you ignore it and you let that culture flap in the wind and go wherever it's going to go, it's generally going to go down. So you have to admit, yes, the managers have a, a handle on culture within the team and it's their responsibility to pull that up. Mm. Um, it doesn't happen. Managers think I've got real work to do. Why do I need to do this soft manby-pamby stuff with my people? They get paid. They should just do their jobs. That's so sad. That's not the point at all. If, if you're thinking like that, quit being a manager. Go back to being an individual contributor. That's what mm. I was going to say. I was going to jump in and say that I think that we need to make a shift in you know, why you want to be a manager. And a manager should be someone who gets excited and says, do you know what? Oh my gosh, I can impact culture. I can do something to not only help the business succeed, but do something to enrich lives. So part of, we've got this sort of logo for the book, which is bad bosses ruin lives, great bosses enrich lives. And I think that as an HR person, it's my responsibility to, first of all, give people who aren't interested in being a manager another way to go because too often people become managers because it's the only way to make money. They yeah. should do it because they want to. I'm just I'm like Ken, for years and years, I tried to convince Ken to be a manager because he's a, a techie, an engineer. Because I just thought he'd be an amazing manager, but you never wanted to do it until no. you thought it was time. And then you were an amazing manager, but oh, it was because yeah. you wanted to do it for the right reasons. Up until then, I thought it was like herding cats, trying to get a bunch of cats to go in one direction. I don't want to deal with people. They're messy. Yeah. But when I realized that if I'm if I improve myself, I improve one person in the organization. If I'm a manager and I improve 10 people just a little bit, I can improve the organization so much more. As a leader, you can have such impact on an organization. And and for you personally then, were you had you been ready to do that for a while, you just hadn't decided to accept that Either let's not even additional responsibility, but change in emphasis in terms of where you were spending your time. Had you always been ready, or did you have to acquire certain skills to allow you to transition from being just really brilliant at your job, your functional job, through to leading others and helping them become better at theirs? I, I'd like to, to to claim that I came straight out of the womb ready to be a leader. <laughs> that is not the case. My Early on in my career, I was in a startup and I was fortunate enough to be the CTO there. And I completely destroyed that job. Mm. I, I ticked at least seven of the bad boss types we've identified here. I wouldn't have wanted to work for anybody who was behaving that way. You wouldn't have worked for yourself. <laughs> I would not. I needed to grow up. I needed to learn. Having children was actually a huge part of it for me mm. because I learned to pull myself out of myself and you don't have to reach for perfection. You have to do as good as you can yeah. and celebrate what you got, right? The key stuff that you need when you're going to become a leader. I wasn't ready until I was ready. I couldn't have done it when I was younger. And when I did try, it, I failed abysmally. Yeah, but I'm, I don't think it's necessarily age. I think it's mindset also, because I've seen some mm. amazing young leaders. So I think it's that shift in your mindset. So my first time I was a boss, I was thrown into it because it was the way to get promoted. So I think I didn't have the right mindset. So to me, that's what I'm hoping is people change this mindset and see it as an opportunity of privilege and a responsibility and not a chore. Definitely. Let's just talk about these 10 bad boss types. I I've certainly seen all of them, I'm sure. And I've been managed by closely by a few of them. And I'll be honest, I can see myself in a few of these as a manager. Because of course, it, this is the point, isn't it? That 
it's all a spectrum, right? If you call yourself, for example, I'm going to pick one of them out, an unappreciator, you've got everything from someone who literally never gives feedback, like your case, Ken, with your boss of four years. And then you've got some who perhaps do it now and then because they're prompted by some new HR tool to send a bit of meaningless feedback. And then at the other end, you've got people who just naturally, that's just part of their process. Every time somebody does anything, not just of value versus a KPI, but just something that you can see someone's proud of, it just comes instinctively to, to say well done and to share it with others in the team. So there's always a spectrum, but I can see some of my failings in that list. But talk us through it how you came up with those specific profiles. You don't have to go through everyone necessarily. And maybe some highlights from your either your personal experience or the things that you think are most common, the personas which are most common among bad bosses. Before we get started, I just want a disclaimer here, right? These are not boxes that people are put into forever. If I'm reading this book and I'm trying to improve myself and I say, I can see that I've been an unappreciator, as you mentioned, that doesn't mean I have it branded on my forehead forever. It means that I've fallen into a trap. I've made a mistake. I can see that I can, I can do some improvement. So just because I was an unappreciator in a single situation with a single employee, that doesn't brand me forever. That's that was the message I wanted to get across. This is a these are stepping stones. These are things to recognize how we can improve. Yeah. It's not you don't have to be that person forever. <laughs> Enough disclaimer, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I think as far as how we came up with them, it started out with us just brainstorming ourselves. What were the different types of bad bosses we've been? What are the different type of bad bosses we've seen? We wrote to people. We asked people to share their stories. I interviewed 25 thought leaders. So the list changed and changed. I guess the, the common theme of the of the 10 of them is they we were trying to make them accessible. We didn't want them to be like people would never admit that they were that kind of boss because it was so horrible. That's the 1% that we're not touching. We're touching the 99% that all of us have, you know, like even like unappreciator was actually the most common, which was disappointing because yeah. the book I wrote before this was on appreciation. So I was <laughs> hoping that it would change. I was hoping it would change, but that's because some people might give appreciation, but they don't genuinely feel appreciated. So mm. going to Ken's point, I might be really good at giving appreciation. Like my son, I use my two kids, everything I do when I appreciate my son works nothing I does I do might work with my daughter. So I have to figure out a different way to make it work for her. Right. And with any of the bosses, as Ken said, that's a common theme. But yeah, unappreciator was the top most common one in 81% of people. And then mm. the two that tied for second place was the micromanager, which is probably one of the common ones at 80%. Yeah. But then the avoider, which was 80%. And that's somebody, we have little emojis for all of them. And again, they're they're a bit fun. They're not like, evil emojis and uh, the avoider is a ghost. So that sort of explains it. Somebody who's avoiding you by either not being there, you know, physically, emotionally, giving you time, space and such. So interesting because it is so often the case that when you ask individuals what they most want from their manager, for example, feedback comes up so often, doesn't it? And yep. that is one way of appreciating somebody. It's not the only. Um, you wrote, literally wrote a book about it, so I'm not going to... I think you're the expert in this situation. But it's amazing that you can both desire appreciation and yet flip it around and you're the one who should be giving it out and it doesn't come obvious to you. So is this a case that, I'm giving people the benefit of the doubt, they just haven't got the time to reflect on what makes a good boss? Or is it that you have to have 
literal reminders to nudge you into these sorts of behaviors is it that just people are too busy and they're overworked yeah, you know i think there's um a couple of different things you know when i do um workshops on appreciation and now i'll be doing and now we'll be doing them with the uh, the bosses the biggest reason i think is that people don't understand the power of it mm. and it's always the first thing i do because there's always those doubters who think to your point i'm so busy why do I need to waste my time thanking someone? You know, mm. they know they're doing a good job already. I don't need to tell them. So the first place I always start is those light bulb moments. And I, I think I wrote a whole chapter in my book on appreciation just on all the different ways that it can help. Because once as a boss, we realize, ooh, actually, I didn't think that it would do that. I think yeah. that is the starting point. And then just understanding how to do it because you said at the beginning, it's not easy to be a ba- to be a great boss. We've got 14 building blocks. We haven't even gone into that yet. But there's yeah. so many tools that we have to use and trying to figure out how to use the tool, when to use the tool. It's never going to be easy. You're never going to get it 100% right. But at least taking the tool out of the, the garage, the shed, whatever, is a starting point because you know it's going to make a difference. Um, I, I, I do think there are a couple of important steps here. First off is in, in, in realizing why it's important. And Deb's written a large section of our book on that. It makes a huge difference. You can use it to, to illustrate to the rest of the team why this person is good and that's the behavior we all want to emulate, that sort of thing. But how you give appreciation is equally as important. In the engineering world, we like to think of bits and bytes and computers and hard stuff with corners and edges and it's got a manual and it's all predictable and all this kind of stuff. And so as a leader, when I'm trying to explain to my people what appreciation is what praise is they're almost universal universally they're like that's ridiculous because why do i need to be all soft and squishy why do i need to be why do i need to over egg that why do i need to tell them they're doing a good job because hey it works it's a good job right yeah Um, so i came up with a little pattern for them that when you're going to give appreciation you be really specific it has to be one person one thing that they did and uh the outcome of that thing so Bob on Tuesday did a thing. The outcome is that we saved a day, is that we delivered the project, is that the customer was happy, whatever the outcome was. But by doing that formula, you take away an awful lot of the uncertainty about giving appreciation and praise, and it turns into a formula. And you can be really specific about that. You don't have to feel funny or squishy because it's clearly Bob did it on Tuesday. He did this thing, and the outcome is right there. There's nothing squishy mm. about that. It's got corners and edges yeah. and everything. And my people used it. They believed in, in giving appreciation that way. That's yeah. what it took for my team. Final point on this. I, I, I get it. If you're in a, let's say, an engineering team, let's say you're a programmer and you have a bunch of tasks you've got to deliver each day, a bunch of tickets that sit on your uh, Jira, your development platform, and it's relatively tangible. There's one specific task and you delivered that task and I can give a specific example and this is the outcome and even add a benefit to it. This is how it's helped push the project on. What about in some of those less tangible aspects of work and particularly certain roles so i think for example i've worked in marketing for years i've worked with lots of hr people sometimes there isn't quite as clear an outcome so how do you tackle that and how could bosses managing those types of teams think about applying a similar sort of approach but with something which is less distinct or like the actual outcome is a little less clear when I do workshops with appreciation, we brainstorm as groups. What does good look like? What does great look like? Because you're right. One of the things that frustrates me is that I talk about putting your appreciation glasses on. On some jobs, it's really hard 
to be able to see what it looks like. But I think if you can start talking about it and just using real examples and post it or whatever you can do. So like in marketing, for example, you just work really hard to get an ad for your company on a website. Yes, that might be your job, but isn't that something that you want to celebrate? Isn't that something that you want to show off in front of other people so that people know, Mm -hmm. you know what? I think that's what I need to do more of. So I do think it isn't as simple in some jobs, but that's why I really encourage people to talk about it and create that learning process so that they can then, when they see it, they know it's something to to be appreciated and constantly have that conversation. Because you're right, that's one of the biggest hurdles I find with people is they don't know what to look for. Having had a a career of taking no time to reflect on very much at all because it was just so busy I've completely flipped and I now spend arguably too much time reflecting on uh, what I'm doing but certainly I even the simple practice of just writing down I have this habit of at the end of every day forcing myself however shit my day's been to just force myself to pick out three highlights of the day and even doing that incrementally by the end of the week I've got a minimum of 15 then I pick out my top three from the week and at the end of the month I've got say 12 and I pick out my top three and it's this kind of constant curation process and it does a couple of things one it helps me see the progress I'm making but also I think thinking about mindset which you mentioned earlier Deb it puts me in the mindset that I am actually making progress and there are things that I'm doing that create value even amongst the the mess of work and it's something that I talk about with team leaders particularly is I try and just get people to switch to that sort of habit because suddenly you you see the value you're creating. And I think that psychologically for the individual, that's important. But also then among the team, if you can just see people dropping in, here's a few things I've achieved today. It does develop this culture. It's self-perpetuating where the celebrating and appreciating other people doesn't feel contrived, which I think sometimes certain software can make it feel. It's about actually getting to your point, Ken, specifics about the work that you've done but also the things that matter to you because sometimes what's obvious to you isn't obvious to other people so there's absolutely. a bit of nuance there Ali that I think that's an absolutely brilliant practice and I'm going to adopt that if you don't steal <laughs> that if you don't like that. I really like that right yeah so actually the next book that, that we want to write is flipping this around and talking about as an employee what's your responsibility and yeah. I think your point I would love for everybody to do a gratitude journal and then mm. when they sit down with their boss, because how is their boss supposed to know all the great things that you do? Like in, yeah. some of my employees would get angry with me for not recognizing them. And it's, yeah. it's your responsibility. You're not showing off, yeah, but it's yeah. your responsibility for highlighting it. So if they had the Ollie gratitude journal and came to mm. me every week, I'd be much, it'd be much easier for me to show appreciation. Oh, yeah. especially in this remote world where yeah. we, we don't even see people. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. If you don't tell me what you're up to, I don't know 98% of what you're up to. I just see that you got that one ticket done. I don't know. See mm. that you went over to help Bob and Alice and, yeah, yeah. Brand and you solved this problem for Jane and yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's about telling the story, isn't it, about the your career, your work. <laughs> um, so, look, bad bosses ruin lives. There are diff- 10 different kind of personas and we probably all fit in each of those to a greater or lesser extent. But what can people do about it? What are they, what you describe as building blocks to actually improving the way that we can manage? And I suppose step one is recognizing these areas that you can improve upon. Step two is taking action. So how can people start taking action? Yeah. And actually what we talk about is awareness, acceptance. And um, the great thing about working with Ken is being an engineer is actually for the awareness and acceptance, he created a a free online um, tool that people could use to understand because we're always we're not always honest with ourselves figure out which of the 10 bosses work but 
once you know what they are, then you can move into your point action and accountability, yeah. which I think is really important yeah. and move towards this either our model or there's lots of other ones out there. I'm not saying this is like the best thing in the world. Figure out what works for you. <coughs> oh, sorry. I'm selling books here. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Pick the model and the toolbox. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Awareness, acceptance, taking action, taking accountability. And I suppose accountability yourself, but also holding others in your team accountable, holding, if you're in a team, holding your manager accountable to an extent. If you can build that culture, that's a, that's a brilliant way to work. But from a personal point of view, then, I want to become a better leader. Perhaps, look, I'm looking at the list here. I would say I was a hoarder uh, and a firefighter. They're the two which stand out to me. I like swooping in and saving the day uh, when things go wrong. And they're probably connected actually, because one of the biggest challenges often, I think when people first become a manager and they have been exceptional in that operational role is that they know that they can do the job better than the person who's more junior to them. And so they're constantly just trying to do the job. And it's only when yeah. you free yourself of that responsibility, you can actually lead. So I'm a hoarder and a firefighter. What would you prescribe to me as the treatment for my ales? Uh, the very first thing I would suggest is to uh, take the assessment. Um, if you go to the website, badbossesruralives.com, one of the links up at the top says assessment. Mm -hmm. Click on that, go through the questions, and it'll, it'll tell you from the questions what your top three are. You, you just said that you were a hoarder and a firefighter. You might not even think about being an, an ignorer. You might mm. not, right? But it, yeah. when you answer the questions, it turns out that now and again, you might be. Anyway, from the top three of the bad bosses that you answer in the first part of the assessment, the last page of the, of the output of the assessment will tell you, look, these are the building blocks that might be the best ones for you to be focused on now. Now, yeah. none of this is, it's, this does not have edges. This is not fact. This is based on your answers. We've seen that you're, you've scored the, scored the highest for these bad boss types. These are the bu building blocks we've identified that go into those. Yeah. Did you want to talk about the building blocks? No, I was just going to say that we tried to give you a few things, but just your example of hoarder, I think a hoarder is different in different situations. So Ken and I got into it yesterday, actually, because I was a hoarder. He wrote a blog to put on the website and I didn't like it. And the reason is because I was hoarding from him my blog plan. Didn't realize I was doing it. I was just busy working along doing it. So he naively writes this blog, which doesn't fit into my plan, and I was a hoarder. So in that situation, I would think, what could I have done differently? First mm. of all, I should have communicated the plan to him. I should yeah. have listened to him, and I should have treated him a bit with a bit more respect and trust. So I think depending on how you're hoarding, it's almost like you just need to look. It takes two seconds. Look at I love the 14 building blocks. Look at the 14 building blocks and think, you know what? Once you get to know what they are, which of the ones in my situation would have helped me? So like you being a hoarder, what does that mean to you? What do you hoard normally or what did you hoard? Yeah, I think probably that example I gave is a bit the best one of it. So it, let's say we had an important client, an mm. important account. So I was running a digital advertising agency. We had an important account. Typically, managing that account and planning their campaign strategy would fall under responsibility of, I don't know, the account director. But they're such a critical account. I want to hoard the, 
the responsibility and the contact with that client because it's so important that we keep that client and I'm the senior strategist or senior planner and I get that stuff I just get it better than them it's just easier it's safer if I do it so that would be a classic example I think of what I would have done and that one fits under empowerment to me that's more about giving your people a bit of autonomy trusting them Mm -hmm. to do it and also understanding how that's going to help them develop so maybe go into to coaching. So that's a very that's what I mean. That's a very different scenario than my hoarding scenario. Yeah. Now, yeah. Counterpoint. <laughs> this is why we wrote together so yeah. we can get into these arm yeah. Counterpoint <laughs> is that these are not absolutes. Sometimes the absolute best thing you can do for your business is still a bad boss move. In that right. particular instance, your business, it might have been a, a, a requirement that you stepped in to support this key customer for your organization, right? And yes, it's a bad boss move, but it's much better than losing the key client and your company going out of business. Mm. So sometimes you just you have to. It's the best thing you can do. It's not what yeah. anybody wants. We don't want to be there. We all recognize that's wrong. But it's still the best move for your business. In the short term. In the, in the short term, yeah. 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 And I've written that in the book, an example of hoarding, where if I had shared this sensitive information with my employees, as much as I respect and trust them, it would have thrown them for such a loop. I waited. And actually building on both of your points there, in that situation, look, there's no reason why you can't also communicate, demonstrate respect and trust in the account director in my case and say, look, This is going to be your role in six months time. Right now it's a critical account, but I'm so believing you. I want you to be part of the conversations. I'm going to lead with it. You're going to be there. You're going to observe. And afterwards, you're going to tell me perhaps the things that you think I did right and wrong and what you can learn from it. So I suppose there's there's the opportunity to do all of those things you mentioned there, but show respect, trust, coach, but frame it, you know, that this is a sort of business critical thing, which we believe you'll take over in the future. I love that. It shows communication. It shows respect. It shows trust in the future. It shows that you're bringing these people on for coaching. It's I love that 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 approach, and it's so much more helpful than look, Bob. You go sit over there for a minute. I got to take care of this customer. And that's why they're yeah. blocks because we did go into we changed the model so many times. Not just what the fourteen aspects were, but also are they blocks? I had another model that was a bridge, and I mm. really wanted it to be a bridge, but then we're like that doesn't make sense, but. I love the idea of the blocks because it's like Lego. You pick the one that's going to work. You put it on top of it. You put it below it, whatever works. And it makes it, I think, a bit more accessible. And it's, oh my gosh, it's not this black and white model. I can use it. What works for me in the particular situation? We're just going full loop here, right? Basic requirements of this are that an individual is so inclined as to reflect and want to improve how they lead. There's also a big challenge here which I see is that most companies, they might pay lip service to promoting this type of self-development, but very often it doesn't manifest in financial investment into coaching training, but more importantly, I think time. So I had had an interesting conversation for the podcast I recorded the other day with John Windsor. He's the founder and chairman of Open Assembly. He's just written a book called Open Talent. And he's talking about the sort of some of the differences between open talent, the idea of hiring a workforce made up of full-time employees, contractors, freelancers, and everyone in between. And his observation, the observation in, in the book they made was that most on average businesses invest 0.3% of an individual's salary on learning. Compare that to on average, freelancers spend 15% of their time on learning and self-development. 
and it doesn't really give employees much of a chance. So I suppose that this is a big question again, but are businesses systemically challenged with actually allowing people to apply these types of lessons to how they're developing themselves as managers? And if that's the case, what should individual managers do about it? Yeah, my biggest gripe when it comes to training programs is, first of all, having focus on the wrong things, because just we only have so much time, we only have so much money. And I think yeah. a lot of organizations, the training modules just don't really stack up to what you need. But then also, you can't just go to a training class and then run your business a different way. So if you go to a training course on trust, respect, authenticity, listening, feedback, and then you don't run your business that way, it's a complete waste of time and money. So for yeah. me, I think that training has to be integrated into the other aspects of your business, whether that's culture, that's how your business runs, that's your people experience, um, which is more work in the long run, but I think it's going to create, it's going to make it sticky. You need to mm. have sticky training. So it needs to have that other side of the Velcro. When you go, you get that one side in the training program and then it sticks to everything as you go about your day. And that's when yeah. I think we're going to have a fundamental shift. The Real challenge, though, you hit it right on the head, is time. Every place I've ever been, we've got a backlog that's three months long, and we have to get it all out by next Tuesday. And it's just, that's always the way it is. But it's incredibly short-sighted to not want to develop your people. Especially in those chaotic environments, you will have people leave. They'll be fed up, or they'll get a better job, or whatever, and they'll leave. And now you've got somebody who's a junior who there is nobody else. They have to step up and do this senior role. But because they've not been developed... They're going to do it in a haphazard fashion. They're not going to do it the way you want them to do it. And so you're going to cause yourself more problems. This is a self-perpetuating problem because they're going to do it poorly and you have to support them. Now, both of you have less time to go deal with the other things that you were dealing with before. It's just a never-ending circle that makes more and more pressure. Right. That's why yeah. we talked about traps and impacts yeah. in the book. So even just using my hoarder example from yesterday, by me not sharing information with Ken, he spent a whole day writing a blog that wasn't what I thought fit in with the strategy. It was a complete waste of his time. It definitely impacted the relationship because he didn't talk to me for an hour, an hour, <laughs> four hours, whatever. I'll show her. I'll show her. So yeah, so it definitely 100% agree that short term, yes, it might have taken less. It might have taken more time to share it, but long term, the repercussions were huge. Yeah. Yeah, I always find it a, a strange one because. Like many, I don't even think it's a benefit. This I don't. I sort of people talk about learning and development as a benefit when it really should just be built into, like you say, the culture of the company. And I always see it as a missed opportunity for com for businesses that don't do it for the very reason I just explained. That look, if uh, I think the the stat in terms of time, let's say fifteen percent of time for freelancers spent on learning, it's relative to employees. That's I think about two and a half percent. So if two and a half percent of time is spent on learning, if even if you were to double that and say you get to spend five percent of your time, then suddenly you're in, in the market, you're differentiating yourself, whether it's formal training or sort of learning in the flow of work. Just making a big feature of that would give me even as an attractive proposition to get new talent and keep them seems like an obvious thing to do. And what am I missing? Yeah, I think we think of learning too linear, though, to your point. Mm. So we need to start broadening. What do we think about learning? Learning should be built into every conversation you have. We'll get off this podcast and Ken and I hopefully will talk about what did we learn from what you said? What did we learn? So I think that mm. we need to really approach it differently. You know, it's interesting because in the building blocks, 
we've got one which is development, which is what we think of more formal, and the other is coaching. Because we wanted yeah. to talk about that it isn't always sitting in a training program. Yes, we write a book, but it's not just reading the book. What are you going to do with it? What conversations, what actions are you going to take? And again, I think that needs to change. People who think that you can just send people to a, you know, a, you know, a class where you're going to cover whatever model you cover, and then Bob's your uncle, they're going to change. It's not going to change. It, it needs to be more fluid. And then going back to what I said before about the sticky, it has to have something to stick onto. Now, this is a bit on the nose being a book about leadership and all this, but when you're giving one-to-ones with your people, you are meant to be having conversations that help people along their journey. Yeah. Um, one of the first steps I, I, that I would do when I was giving my one-to-ones is to find out that, what that person's uh, goal is. What do you want your career to be when it grows up? Do you want to be, do you want to stay on the engineering track? Do you want to go off into leadership? Uh, to, to give me an idea of how I can challenge them as their manager. Now, obviously, we have our day-to-day job we have to get done. In engineering, it's really common that if somebody joins an organization as an Android developer, that's it. Boom. They are labeled Android developer on their forehead, and that's it forever, which mm. is so pathetic. It's so sad. It puts them in this little box they cannot escape from. So you have to find out that, yeah, okay, today they're an Android developer. Tomorrow, they want to be a staff engineer. And the day after that, they want to be a principal engineer. There's a series of steps you can take from here to there. If you think of that as a flag on top of a mountain and you're in the middle of a valley, there's steps you can take today to get you one step closer to that goal way over there. You're not going to be a principal engineer tomorrow, but if you take a course, if you read a book, if you do a side project, if you demonstrate something to your peers, you do some pair programming, there are all these little steps that you can take that lead you one step closer towards your ultimate goal. But as yeah. managers, we need to be having those conversations and finding out what are the directions of our people. Yeah, and you, you make a really interesting point. I think also, about, and we you touched on it a bit earlier on. I think in some organisations, many organisations, and some certainly in many people's minds, the only way to advance is to become a manager, and the manager just manages people, and that's all they do. Hmm. When actually, a lot of people love doing the specific job that they're great at doing and they might want to incorporate all these new elements into it and it becomes this new job it doesn't didn't exist before and it doesn't sit neatly in the hierarchical structure of the the organization and again i think reimagining that is almost as important as as anything else just trying to rethink what it means to build a career and sometimes leadership is a part of that but it doesn't have to be exclusive to the role in order to get paid more money and advance within the company in one of my books my favorite model it's by charles handy and it's called the donut model and i use it in job design and it's all about that idea of you've got the dough around the outside which is your job You always build a bit of jam or jelly in the middle, which is something Mm. that can stretch the person. Or these days we've got like social groups. Somebody might have a passion about something. So it's, I love challenging people when you design jobs to create that donut. So yeah, that's a, that's a Charles Handy model. Custard for me. Custard. There There you go. Brilliant. Well, I've really enjoyed chatting. I've really also enjoyed rethinking how I lead other people and reflecting on the things that I've done not so well, but also, you know, some of the things I've done well as well. You, know, you shouldn't always chastise yourself. Um, no, <laughs> anything you want to leave us with before we wrap up? The most important thing is we're all on a journey. Good bosses are not always good. They mess up sometimes, 
bad bosses are not always bad. They don't, they, they can do good things. Yeah. So the important thing I think, at least for, for me is, is to recognize that we're all on a journey. None of this is black and white. None of this makes you good. None of this makes you bad. We're on a journey. We need to encourage ourselves and we need to encourage the people around us to carry on that journey. Deb? No, I would agree. I just admitted how I was a bad boss yesterday and we wrote the book. And part of the reason we share so many stories in the book is to show people, do you know what? Ken's point. We all do it. It's what it's how you handle the situation afterwards. To be fair, most of the stories were hers, but never mind. I'm not going. I'm not going <laughs> to believe that. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, thank you. I really enjoyed it, and um, I'll put links to the book and the website in the show notes. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Thanks, Ali. So thank you to Deborah and Ken for joining me today. I hope you found it as useful as I did. I'll be back here with another pod next week, so I'll see you here again then.